Lord, I'll worship your whole. Amen. We're continuing our series, Rediscover Church, guided by the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. And we're studying through each chapter of the book in our three-part topical sermon series to consider what and who the Bible says the church is. In addition, much of what I will be sharing will be directly from Jonathan Lehman's short book titled, What is the Mission of the Church? and Max Stiles' Evangelism, which are all wonderful resources to help you think more on this topic that we'll be talking about today. As we have discussed last Sunday, so much has happened in the past few years which has tested the church, capital C, in numerous ways of its identity and its priorities. And among many lessons that the Bible-believing churches in America have been learning, I pray the most important thing that we have learned is that the church is indeed essential. As the authors of this book says, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. Furthermore, think about this question. Can a person truly be a Christian without a church? Can a person truly be a Christian without a church? Without fellow Christians affirming a person's profession and their life? Without fellow brothers and sisters holding a person accountable for their faith? Without a person sitting under God's preached word with fellow believers? Can a person truly be a Christian without a church? Simply, the gathering of Christians to worship God has always been our priority. It's never been optional. In person and regularly and with purpose, according to Hebrews 10.25, to sing God's word, to pray God's word, to preach and hear God's word and see God's word through baptism and Lord's Supper has always been our priority. Amen? And that we do it when we do it, how we do it, has never been up to us to determine, but has been instructed for us clearly in Scripture. It's an idea in theology called the regulative principle, where Christians aim to worship God when they gather together in the way that God Himself has revealed and the way that He has commanded for us to worship Him in His Word. From the earliest pages of the Scriptures, God's people were instructed in how they ought to worship God. Those who approached God on their own terms and their own ways suffered severe consequences. And if we consider worship involving all of life, not just the songs we sing on Sunday afternoons, that's why we don't call this worship. We call it singing. Worship involves all of life. Then we ought to consider carefully what Scripture commands, not only how we gather, but also how we scatter, what we do when we scatter, which is largely the topic of our message today. But before we get there, brothers and sisters, what joy and peace and comfort to know that the measure of our faith is not dependent on our innovation or creativity or progress or change, but simply faithfulness. We don't have to compete with the secular world to win people to Christ. We don't have to follow cultural trends or agendas to get people to church. We don't have to entertain people to keep people coming. We just have to be faithful to God's Word. Amen? God's people are hungry for God's truth. God's people are thirsty for God's righteousness lived out among His people. As generations after generations of those who have gone before us have been doing for our spiritual growth and vitality, for the church's perseverance to accomplish God's purposes, we need to be faithful to God's Word. Amen? Somebody talk to me now. Come on. God's word promises us He is faithful and He will keep us to the end. 
The work that He has begun in us, He will bring it to completion. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. The question we have before us today, how do we love outsiders? Perhaps sounds simple initially, but give it some thought and you'll realize it's one which requires some careful biblical exegesis. In fact, it's a question many Christians and churches have been and are still are wrestling and debating, even as Bible-believing evangelicals. I specify Bible-believing Christians because sadly there are many who claim to be Christians who reject God's Word as infallible and inerrant. Again, this is exactly the reason why this question is important. Because the question of how do we love outsiders has to do directly with what and who the church is. Otherwise, the question to this answer will be left for Christians in churches with the loudest voices and the most passionate voices or those who have the most influence. And also, if such is the case, the church may vacillate by what each generation may deem are the most pressing issues of their day. But again, the question of how we love outsiders is not up to us to determine. We ought to look to the Bible and what it says. So in order to answer that question, how do we love outsiders, I want to share with you four purposes of Christ's great commission and how the church can love outsiders. Four purposes of Christ's great commission and how the church can love outsiders. Here's the outline so you know what's ahead. The church's mission, the church's power, the church's work, and the church's hope. Mission, power, work, and hope. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, through this word, I pray that you would be reminded of the beautiful truth that because of Jesus Christ, we who are once far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. I pray that you would be reminded again of the glorious good news that while we were yet enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. I pray this humbling reminder would convict and compel us to love outsider well all the more in the new year. If you are here and you are not a Christian, or if you are not sure whether you are, you may feel like an outsider, but you'll get the inside scoop of how we aim to love on you today. So welcome. We're so glad that you are here today. We've been praying for you. We've been praying that the Lord would bring you here to hear God's word this afternoon. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ so we pray that you will hear Christ's invitation to love Him and trust in Him. Jesus is the only God who has come to save sinners and make a way for us to Himself. Jesus is the only one who has died and conquered sin, Satan, and death and rise again to offer us forgiveness and to reconcile us to God. Jesus is the only one who sits on the throne of God today, this very moment, and reigns right now as the sovereign King of the universe. He holds the whole world in His hand. Hallelujah. We pray that through this word you would come to know Him as Lord and Savior today. So let's turn to God's Word. Look with me again to our scripture reading passage, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that our sister Elaine read, found on page 835 of the Blue Bibles around you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 says this. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How do we love outsiders? Point number one, consider the church's mission. Now again, the question of how we love outsiders has everything to do with what and who the church is. 
And therefore, the first thing we need to consider is, what is the church for? Or, what is the mission of the church? At first, you may think, what's the connection? How is it relevant? Simply, the church's mission is what Jesus calls the church to do. But as author Jonathan Lehman says, oftentimes, our convictions about what Jesus calls us to do are often shaped not just by Him and His words, but by the political or economic challenges we're facing. Those realities that feel the most urgent. For example, when people feel the pressures of political division or cultural decline, or when a viral video that enrages us and provokes us to respond, people may think now is the time for the church to stand up and fight. They believe those pressing concerns is what churches need to fight for. But think about how that may become problematic. A person cares about the poor. A person cares about the life of the unborn. Or somebody cares about biblical marriage. Or about oppression and abuse. And they feel the pressing urgency depending on their own life's circumstances. Or the most appalling recent Supreme Court decision. Or perhaps the most enraging headlines. And they look to the Bible, they search the scriptures, and they see in the Bible talking about these things. So they say, the church exists for these things. Well, at least that is the temptation, isn't it? This is exactly the reason why we need to be clear as Christians more than ever to know what is the mission of the church. What is the mission of New Covenant Baptist Church? In 2023, Christians on the political right think they need to take a stand in responses to the LGBTQ plus revolutionaries and moral threats to religious freedom. Christians on the left say the same about racism and structural injustices. And how many Christians took their stands in response to COVID-19, quarantine, masks, vaccines, to gather or not to gather, to live stream or not? Furthermore, pastors a few decades ago who argued it wasn't in their job description to tell people how to vote or lead marches in recent years have changed. They say unprecedented times call for unprecedented measures. Circumstances change their sense of urgency. Things in 2023 are not as black and white as they once used to be. That's why these few years have been so hard on churches and pastors, because issues have compounded on top of each other, making it more complicated. No doubt there are times to take stands or do things that are unusual for such a time as this, Yet it's precisely in these moments, again, brothers and sisters, we need to be especially careful lest our churches veer off track. The temptation to swerve grows when strife grows. More than anything, then, days of cultural turmoil and political tumult requires us to double down in studying and standing firm on the Scriptures and seeking what God instructs His people regarding the church's mission. Because as Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Jesus is not caught off guard. Unlike us, Jesus is not reactionary to the events of the day. He knows all things. He holds all things. The truth is, no matter what happened last Saturday in Monterey Park, or what happened in Memphis, Tennessee on January 10th, no matter what great tragedies that will befall us tomorrow or the next day, Jesus still reigns. Jesus is still sovereign. Jesus' mission for the church hasn't changed. There is no new revelation. We press on with what Jesus commanded the church to do in Acts 1, 7 and 8. Jesus said to them, It is not for you. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Wow. 
You will receive power when Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, can I just remind you the Holy Spirit has already come. Every Christian lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And our calling is what? To be witnesses. It's not to be cultural prophets, you see. It's to be witnesses of Jesus and what He has done in His death and resurrection. In church history, churches have answered the question of how to love outsiders at least in four different ways. These would be the four broad alternative categories of how churches have sought to love outsiders and largely how they have determined their identity. First, some churches believe that church is for evangelism. Now you may be saying, what? Let me explain. This kind of church aims to get people inside a building on Sunday morning so they can hear the good news about Jesus and be converted. Preaching and teaching stay focused on the basics. Our problem with sin, our general problem with sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the necessity of belief. You are a sinner. Jesus died and rose again for you, so you believe in Jesus. To meet the needs of the people's teaching series based on relationships and parenting, uh, finances, pop culture, and other topics that connect with outsiders. This type of church gears everything toward non-Christians. They are heavy on evangelism. The more people reach with the gospel, the bigger the rewards in God's kingdom. If one person hears the gospel and gets saved, or better yet, a thousand people, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But that's about the depth you'll get at such a church. Forget about sermons that last more than 30 minutes, that'll bore people. Forget about singing old hymns, that is so old-fashioned. Forget about requiring meaningful membership, that will turn people off. We'll call this a seeker church. The second type of church is similar to church one, but it appeals less to the middle class longings for things like purpose and more to basic human desires for health and wealth. Join their service on Sunday and you'll hear about God's desire to bless you if only you'll have faith. Better yet, put some more money in that offering plate in faith and God will bless you 30, 60, 90, or 100 fold. You just gotta have faith. We'll call this the prosperity church. Church number three and four emphasize how we are here for Jesus on earth to be his hands and feet. But church three... And four are on completely different ends of the spectrum. Church number three is the justice church. You'll hear the preacher say we should care for the downtrodden and the marginalized and the oppressed. They'll teach we need to wake up to the nation's structural injustices and do good to the world. Church number four is another version of church number three, but it focuses on the structural injustices that concern political conservatives like abortion, same-sex marriage, religious freedom. So we'll call church number three the justice church. We'll call church number four the righteous nation church. Here's the deal. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these values that these churches emphasize. We'll find it in scripture, the grounds for all these reasons why these churches focus on these things. And of course, as we talked about last Sunday, diversity is God's gift to the churches so that we have different churches with different gifts is a good thing. Still yet, Lehman argues, and I think he is right, There's a difference between being sensitive to the economic waves and political winds surrounding us and being driven by those waves and winds. When churches are driven, their playbooks, their sense of their mission easily succumb to biblical imbalances and worldly agendas. Seeker churches show signs of having succumbed to consumerism and individualism. Prosperity churches to materialism. Justice churches to political progressivism. And righteous nation churches to nationalism. The thing is, all four may have orthodox statements of faith. Church is similar to ours. Well, there's more that can be said, but simply, what is the church's mission then? 
Look at verses 18 and the first part of 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We know this well-known passage as the Great Commission. It's the final words Jesus gave to the disciples in how his followers ought to relate to the world to outsiders. But notice, in commissioning his disciples, his first instructions are about what he himself authorizes us to do. The authority that he has is given to you and me. In other words, what we are commanded and commissioned is only what Jesus himself is commanding us, authorizing us to do. What is that? Go, therefore, and make disciples, not merely converts. We are to make disciples who deny themselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus, not become hoarders of God's blessings through health and wealth. We are to make disciples, not try to fight against the corrupt systems and systemic injustices that is deeply rooted in our society and become cultural and social warriors. We are to make disciples and not try to make sure we make America great again into the Christian nation it once was because it never was. We don't want America or any other nation to be a substitute Christian nation ever. That's never been or ever will be the biblical vision of God's kingdom. Never. God's vision for God's reign has always been within His chosen people, the church universal and the church local, where local churches are the embassies of God's kingdom. And each one of us are ambassadors, living as pilgrims in this foreign land, bringing outsiders in. The church's mission, again, is to make disciples, born again, self-denying, cross-carrying, holy, living followers of Jesus, disciples who make disciples. Let me just clarify again, in case I wasn't. Christians ought to align with biblical convictions, be responsible, God-honoring, law-abiding citizens of this nation. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Christians ought to fight and stand for life from womb to tomb. Christians ought to fight against systemic racism and injustices, of course. Christians ought to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Christians ought to lay down our rights to serve the least of these. That the primary mission of the church through them all is to make disciples of all nations. The primary way we can love outsiders is to make insiders. Because only in Him can we cling to the promise of Proverbs 18, 10 through 12. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Safety and peace and life are only found in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no peace in any place else, in no other man than Jesus Christ. Which leads us to point number two. In loving those on the outside, consider the church's power. Somebody say power. Look with me again to the end of verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Of course, in this conversation about loving outsiders, bringing outsiders in, making insiders of outsiders may sound to people who don't know what we're talking about a bit arrogant, a bit facetious or assuming. Who's to say an outsider wants to be an insider? Who's to say an outsider wants anything to do with our mission? Not for me, right? Wow, in the day of acceptance and tolerance, Christianity sounds a bit narrow and bigoted and very exclusive. And they may say, not for me. 
But the idea of baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptism which requires a public profession of faith, which in the first century in the Jewish culture to turn from Judaism to Christianity was known as blasphemy and potential martyrdom. In the Roman culture, when polytheism, the worship of any and every false god out there was acceptable and championed into believing in the one true God who is the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one religion that both upset the Jews and Gentiles, it may seem kind of odd. And how did this happen? How did such a grassroots movement, a small group of Jesus' disciples, literally turn the world upside down to grow into the, one of the largest, the largest, and most influential religion in the world? How did this happen? The power, the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters. The power of the gospel brought outsiders in. The gospel is the most amazing truth. The truth can save you from your worst fears. The truth that can save you from your worst regrets. The truth that can heal you from your worst pains. The truth that can save you from your darkest sins. The truth that can save you from death. But not only is it truth, as in head knowledge, it's truth that sets you free. It's truth that gives you new life. Truth that promises peace with God and peace with man, peace within yourself. Truth that gives us eternity. And it's freely given to us. It's already accomplished for us. It's guaranteed more secure than any 401k. Do you want it? But the sad reality is that the Bible says because of the depravity and darkness of our sins and unrighteousness, Humanity has suppressed and rejected the truth of God. The Bible says no one is righteous, not even one. Therefore, they don't desire it, you see. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. John 3.19 says that the light of the world has come into the world. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Even if God is everywhere, people could not see Him. People could not choose Him. Because Ephesians 2.1 says we are all dead in our trespasses. And sins. But Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power unto salvation. It is the power to make blind eyes see and deaf ears hear and lame legs walk. More importantly, it is the power to make dead souls alive. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you know this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That God who is holy and unlike any other created all things in love for his glory and for our good. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to be a God unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word, choosing death over life. As a result, we were separated from God, entirely helpless to save ourselves from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. And because of our continuous rebellion and sin, we rightly, we justly deserve His wrath and judgment as the consequential sentence of our sins. But God... In His mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to save a people to know His great love. How? By sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross for our sins, sins of the past, present, and future. He paid the debt that we would have suffered in eternal hell. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Jesus Christ rose again from death on the third day, which meant that God accepted His sacrifice once and for all, conquering sin, Satan, and death. And whosoever would repent and believe in Him will not die and go to hell, 
but participate in His resurrection. In Him we get to live the abundant life here on earth right now. Eternity has begun for us, for those of us who believe in Him. And we await with hope for His glorious return to live a glorious eternal life with Him and all who love and fear His name forevermore. This is the good news, brothers and sisters, that drew us in, isn't it? This is the gospel that transformed sinners into saints, isn't it? This is the only gospel that makes outsiders into insiders, isn't it? If you are here and you are not a Christian, if you feel like an outsider, here is Jesus' invitation for you. There's not a single one of us who became an insider by our own power, by our own merits, by our own good deeds. Every other religion in the world requires your own good works to be accepted by their gods. But Jesus is the one true God who came to us and He Himself became an outsider. He was taken outside the city gates to be sacrificed on our behalf that we might be brought in into the family of God, adopted as His own sons and daughters. And as Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean there's no distinction in some progressive secular way. It means we are one in value, worth, and dignity. We are one in Christ as God is one, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as in our Trinitarian God there is true peace and true oneness and true love only in Him. We get to experience that by being a part of Him, by being a part of His body. Aren't you glad that you are in the family because of our holy and amazing and awesome God? Amen? Dear friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, Jesus invites you today, this afternoon, right now, this moment, to join this family. We invite you. We've been praying for you that you would enter into this church body. It's awesome. We are all different, but we are one. We all carried pains and past. We all struggle with temptation and sins. But we know because of Christ, because He came to live, die, and rise, for me, for us, we are forgiven of our sins. We trust in Him. We follow Him. No matter what happens, no matter what this life and earth brings, no matter what tragedies, no matter what shocking surprises this earth brings, we have hope in Christ. And it's certain and it's guaranteed. We will meet with Him again. We will rise with Him again. Whatever happens on earth is not the end. The end is only the beginning in Jesus Christ. So if you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, won't you today become an insider? It's freely offered to you. Receive the blessings and the benefits that Jesus extends to you. There is no better option. To those who reject Him, there is only pain and death and eternal judgment. That's what this life guarantees. So I want to encourage you to repent of your sins. That means to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you have rebelled against Him, that you need Him today, right now. Turn from your sins and look to Him. And believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Yes, even you. He was your substitute. He took your place. He suffered your punishment. And trust Him. Maybe you're fearful. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all this stuff that I'm carrying? Trust Him with your life, your past, your present, your future. In Him, He bore the cross for our shame, for our guilt, for your past. If you want to know more about following Jesus, please come and talk to one of the pastors at the close of service at any of the doors or talk to someone smiling next to you. Ask them to share about how they who are outsiders, once outsiders became insiders. We would love to talk to you and pray for you today. Some applications for my church family. If our main mission in loving outsiders is making disciples, recognize the primary power 
in which that mission is accomplished is through proclaiming and sharing the gospel. So dear brothers and sisters, do you preach the gospel in season and out of season? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone who did not know it? Did you assume a non-believer knew the good news you know of Jesus? If you believe the gospel is the power unto salvation, did you articulate the most powerful, wonderful, amazing news to someone who did not know it? Not simply invite them to church. Not simply say Jesus loves you or that you are a Christian. Not simply choose to not order beer at a restaurant and hope that someone will figure out that you are a Christian. No, speak words of how a sinner can be saved in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. This week I got to revisit uh, this most wonderful, helpful book by Max Stiles on evangelism. I think every one of you should read it. Buy a copy today in the book cart or borrow from me. I have several copies. Read it with someone. This book, Max Stiles, Evangelism. Evangelism by Max Stiles. Max Stiles says, There is no evangelism without words. You're not being a faithful witness if words of the gospel does not come out of your lips. You can't love someone into salvation. You can't care for someone into knowing Jesus. Yes, pray, pray, pray that the Lord would do His work of conversion, but articulate and proclaim and share the good news of Jesus Christ. The only question is, for so many church members, do you know how to share the gospel? Do you know how to share the gospel? Do you know it? Max Stiles says again, if you do not know how to teach the gospel, you may not truly understand it. And if you do not understand it, you may not truly be a Christian. Think about that for a second. Why don't you share the gospel? Perhaps you don't know it. Perhaps you don't know it because you're not a Christian. Is that the truth for you? I hope it's not. Stiles also says if you're bored with the gospel, you need to take a deep look at the sin in your heart. If the gospel does not resonate in your heart, check and see that you are truly converted. Ouch. So, are you a Christian? Do you understand the gospel? Do you know how to teach the gospel? Pick up a copy of Greg Gilbert's What is the Gospel Today from our book cart. Again, read it with a fellow church member. Study the gospel. Be amazed at the gospel. Treasure it. Cherish it. Be excited about it. And let it overflow into sharing it. Every single conversation you have with somebody you see. The gospel is the power that makes outsiders into insiders. Non-believers to believers, rebels to regenerate. The church is a body of born-again believers. Through baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, through their public profession of faith, and through the church's affirmation of their profession, outsiders are made insiders by becoming fellow members of the local church body. Again, this is why church membership is so important. Because how are Christians able to love outsiders if we don't even know who the insiders are? How are church members and pastors to obey Hebrews 13, 17 if there's no way to tell who's in and who's out? Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Colin Hansen says, Too often Christians and churches become so preoccupied with redeeming the culture of transforming the city that they fail to get their own houses in order. When churches must first seek to become redeemed cultures and transformed heavenly cities within itself, only then can our love and good works and pursuits of justice spill outward with integrity. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see outsiders become converted as insiders by the power of the gospel, to baptize them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Spirit and to bring them into the church body to covenant together, to grow and serve together is what the church is, is what the church does. At our members' meeting following service today, we will get to exercise the keys of the kingdom as according to Matthew 16, 19 and Matthew 18, 18 and vote in six new members into our church body. Today, the elders will share a brief testimony of how these brothers and sisters heard the gospel and were saved and our members will vote with usually all resounding yeses and our commitment to love and care for them spiritually as they covenant with us to follow Jesus and to proclaim Jesus with us together. Church, we love outsiders by proclaiming the church's power, discerning their testimony, accepting them as insiders, exercising the keys of the kingdom. That's point number two. Point number three, we love outsiders by point number three, considering the church's work. Look at the first part of verse 20. Again, it says this, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The task of loving outsiders is incomplete if we just bring them in. As I mentioned, many churches simply focus on the work of conversion and evangelism to get them saved, uh, to get them to pray a prayer, to get them to walk down the aisle, to, to get them to sign a membership form or a membership card. A long time ago, I was part of a church that prided itself in a certain evangelism program. It was a nationally well-known program of evangelism. The goal was to get as many people possible to sign up and get trained in this program as possible, to get them outside to share the gospel. One lady claimed that she shared the gospel to 2,000 people, and she was given a plaque in church service, during church service, as the best evangelist of whatever year it was. I'm serious, this happened. It made me question, though, where was a single person she shared the gospel with? We didn't see any single one of those 2,000 people. Not to doubt her or to be skeptical of her efforts and that church's efforts to encourage evangelism. However, again, what is the mission of the church? Not to make converts, but to make disciples. And how is that done? By proclaiming the powerful gospel by baptizing them into church membership, by teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us, by discipling them, by discipling them. Brothers and sisters, sadly, many in our churches, discipleship is reduced to classes and programs or events or weekends or retreats. But making disciples ought to be the most natural, normal, regular part of Christian living. Discipleship is simply helping others to follow Jesus as you yourself are following him. As fathers and mothers, we are called to disciple our children by praying for them, by reading scripture to them, by leading and explaining to them the Bible, by modeling for them what a Christian lives like. As a husband and a wife, there's mutual discipleship as the husband leads and sacrifices and as the wife submits and helps. As church members, we have a responsibility first to love the word for ourselves, to love hearing God's word preached and taught, to love reading the word, to love studying the word, and then to share that love of the word with others through discipling relationships, through community groups, through Bible studies, through Sunday seminars. We abide by the word, by living lives of holiness in private and before others, and by holding one another accountable, by being open to feedback and loving rebuke. So brothers and sisters, know this, when we as individuals and together as a church become a word-centered people, we will seek lives of being faithful in loving our neighbors, rather than only being lovers of ourselves, rather than just loving those who are easy to love. 
we are able to love those whom the Lord brings, even outsiders, even those who are difficult to love. So yes, in our individual lives, our discipling may look all different. God has given us diverse gifts to serve in diverse ways, to point to the one who is able to save, the one who is our king. So whether that's helping the poor, whether that's fighting racism, or protecting the life of the unborn, we don't do it nonchalantly. We don't turn a blind eye. We keep the gospel as priority toward outsiders. When tragedies happen, we don't fight society. And injustice is with our power. We fight with the power that has the power to transform. Power to bring darkness to light. Power to deliver death to life. We care for one another deeply and genuinely. We go all in in the work of discipling, as we spoke about last Sunday, into maturity, into the unity of faith, into more depending on Christ and the church, into the fullness of Christ. This is the church's work. That is how we love outsiders. Amen? Finally, the church's hope. Look at the last part of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What words of comfort. What words of hope. In light of the craziness that is going on in this nation and all around the world, we can be fearful. We can honestly be fearful of what is ahead. When we look at politics and the bitter nastiness and the lies, it can seem hopeless, can it? When we keep hearing of shootings and massacres of different ethnicities, even in elementary schools, it can seem hopeless. When we hear of tragedies like that of Mr. Nichols, we are horrified and baffled and angry and confused by the sin and the evil of our society. But we have a policeman in our congregation. And we have black brothers and sisters whom we love in our congregation. Both can fear. I can't even imagine how our black brothers and sisters must be processing and grieving through these tragedies and how they might fear for the future. And we mourn. And we lament with them for the sins of this nation. Yet a word of encouragement and reminder for you and for all of us. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ultimately, it's a reminder. Death brings us face to face with the hope that this world is not our home. There is an expiration date to all earthly sorrow and suffering for those who trust in Jesus. Revelation 2, 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or dying or pain anymore, for the former things will pass away. When Christ returns, this is our hope. There is no other hope in this world from any other God. There is no other God, only Christ. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is our hope. This is the church's hope. So I'm asking you the question, brother or sister, what is your hope in life and death? What is your hope in the valleys and lows of life when tragedies come? Is it Christ who will never leave us or forsake us? Is it Christ who will keep you to the end? Is it Christ who will vanquish all injustice, who is the good and righteous judge? He will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
praise God, He granted us mercy because we also were the ones who are outsiders, who are far off. We were the ones who are guilty. But by Jesus Christ, because of the ransom that He gave of Himself, we have been brought near to God. Brothers and sisters, love outsiders by knowing and doing the church's mission, by believing and proclaiming the church's power of the gospel, by abiding and teaching and discipling one another through God's word, which is the church's work, and by clinging to the promise and eagerly awaiting for Christ's return, which is the church's hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this afternoon we are reminded of the 10,000 reasons we have to rejoice in you, to hope in you, to cling to you, to praise you, even when dark days of distress comes our way. Father, we can stand firm by the promise of your word because you are a keeper of your word. Every promise of your word has come true. We thank you that you've awakened us to this truth. We hold on to the hope that Christ is ours forevermore. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray.